All right. Well, like Lexi said, if you're new, thanks for being here this morning. It's such a blessing to have you here. If I haven't got the chance to meet you yet, my name is Daniel, and I'd love to meet you after service. And if you're wondering if Activate's for you, I think we made this point, but yes, it's for you. And I just want to explain it a little bit more just to give complete clarity on what it is. It's really for anyone who calls Sent Church Home, but also for people who are newer to the church. In the first week, is going to be all about what it means to make Sent Church your home. So I'll explain something called church partnership. So it's similar to what you might think of as church membership, but we're calling it church partnership to emphasize that we're partnering together to build the kingdom of God in the Cedar Valley together. It's a way to say that this is your home and you're committed to partnering here, that these are your people. Then week two, it's going to be all about how to walk with Jesus daily. It's going to kind of focus on spiritual disciplines. In week three, we're going to talk about how to be a healthy member of a community, so just some basic building blocks of being uh, the family of God together. And then week four, we'll talk about how you can live on mission for God's kingdom. We'll specifically be doing a spiritual gifts assessment and then the DISC personality assessment to kind of help or help you find your place in the church. So I'm really excited for that. You don't have to do all four classes at once. Just do as many as you can, then catch the other one on the, on the way back around when we do it again. But please register today again. I just want to emphasize that because we want to be able to be prepared for who's all going to be here. So so that's enough about that. Now we're going to jump into the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. We're starting today. This is week 27 of the Gospel of Mark series, and I'm particularly excited about this message. In the last few weeks, we've seen that Jesus' ministry is really beginning to take off. He has sent his disciples out on their first mission. He has fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes, and then last week he walked on water. And we even saw that he was causing such a stir that King Herod had heard about him at this point. In Mark, he's trying to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah is the, is the coming king that Israel had been waiting for to come and save them from their plight. And, and Mark is trying to show us, through Jesus' interaction with his disciples and the crowds, that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And it's in this context that we continue our journey through the gospel. So let's pick it up in verse 1. It's a little bit longer passage, so bear with me this morning. It says this. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with... There were some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked them, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left his people, his disciples asked him about this parable. He said to them, 
then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that, that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and it's expelled, and thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they are what defile a person. Okay, so the sermon title this morning, if you're taking notes, and I sure hope you are, is the revolution of the heart. Revolution of the heart. All right, let me pray as you write that down. So Jesus, I pray this morning that your word would speak. I pray that this would not be my own ideas. I pray that this would not be lofty words of wisdom or just a teaching. But God, I pray that this would be a demonstration of your spirit's power. Holy Spirit, we invite you to move in this place. We did not come out to church this morning just to do religion. We came to meet with you. Spirit of God, we ask you now to have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so when I was in high school, I had a Jeep Grand Cherokee that I really loved. It didn't have too many miles on it when I got it. It was only about five years old. I was so blessed to have that vehicle at 16 years old. And throughout high school, it rode really well. It never needed repairs. I don't even think I, like, changed the oil or anything. I just, like, drove it around, and it just never had any issues. However, at the end of my senior year, on a cold February night, I was driving some friends home after a late night at Perkins. It's what we did. We went to Perkins at, like, you know, 11 o'clock at night. And we're out on this country road just outside Cedar Rapids by Ely, if you know where that is. And we hit a patch of ice. And before I knew it, the Jeep was in the ditch, and it rolled a couple times. And to my surprise, the Jeep wasn't totaled. I don't know how, but it wasn't totaled. And insurance covered its repairs. However, that vehicle was never the same after this. It started breaking down all the time. And by the time Emily and I moved to Minneapolis a couple years later and got married, it seemed as if it broke down at least once a month. And maybe that's because I never changed the oil. I don't know. But the point is, <laughs> I remember one night I had family in town in Minneapolis. We're driving around. I'm showing them downtown. It's awesome. Then all of a sudden this big billow of smoke comes up from the hood and just completely ruined our night. A different time, I remember me and Emily were out on a date at this drive-in movie. We're driving back through St. Paul at like 3 in the morning. You know, I'm just so tired, just ready for bed. And all of a sudden I hear, thum, 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 thum. I just spit a ton. Sorry. Thum, 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 thum. Yeah, good thing my wife's in the front row, but anyways. And so, uh, and this journey ended with us getting a tow, having to stay the night at her sister's apartment in St. Paul, and then her sister had to go to work in the morning, so she dropped us off at the light row in St. Paul, and we had to light row back in our clothes from the last day. It was a rough time. And it seemed like no matter how much money we put into this Jeep, it just could not seem to run well for any period of time. There was obviously something deeper wrong with this vehicle that probably happened when I rolled it. Eventually, I got fed up, and I said, we're getting a different car. We sold it and bought a used car that had no accident history, and it ran perfectly for us. Oftentimes, our lives can feel like my adventure with the Jeep. We just keep running into problems, and we can't figure out why. For instance, some of us just seem to consistently struggle with relationships. I'm not just talking about like, like a dating relationship or, or with your spouse, but with friendships and just being with people. We just can't seem to have peace with other people. We struggle to find people who we can say, hey, these are my people, Others of us, we feel overwhelmed and never feel like we have enough time to do the things that, that we want to do. We can just never seem to have enough time in the week. There's still others who struggle with our self-worth. We just, it seems like no matter how hard we try, we just can't feel good about ourselves. And our typical reaction when we have these kinds of repeated struggles is to keep, or keep fine-tuning these areas of our lives in hopes that it will deal with the issue. So for example, if you struggle with relationships, it's likely that 
they have a tendency to just keep finding new friends and keep joining new communities. Or if you consistently feel overwhelmed and out of time, you might have a tendency to just cut things out of your schedule. Or if you struggle with self-worth, you might consistently pursue achievements or people that can make you feel good. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes we need to find new friends. Sometimes we need to cut things out of our schedule. Sometimes we need to change our surroundings. However, the problem is these things often fail to deal with the actual root cause of our struggles. Oftentimes, the cause of our relational struggles is not something out there, but it's in here. We may struggle with others because we're self-centered, and we fail to see other people's perspectives. We may struggle with time because we lack self-discipline. We may struggle with self-worth because we don't know what God thinks about us. If we want to be whole, healthy people, we need to deal with the root cause of our issues, not just the symptoms. We need to just get a different vehicle, so to speak, with good bones instead of continuing to repair the old one at the cheapest possible cost. I feel like I always try to find some weird guy that just did stuff out of his garage, like, please fix this at the cheapest possible rate, and that's probably also why I kept breaking down, but that's a side note. (laughs) It's safe to say that we all agree that something is messed up in our world. Specifically in the last few years, I just think it's been on display. Something's always been messed up in our world, but it just seems like the last few years, we're reminded every single week that there's something terribly wrong. The car, so to speak, just keeps breaking down. We have seen this vividly through you know, COVID-19, natural disaster, societal upheaval, tribalism. And just this last week, we saw unspeakable tragedy in Texas with that horrific shooting. Something is terribly wrong. We are spiritually sick. And the question I'm going to look at this morning that our text answers is, how does Jesus deal with our spiritual sickness? How does he deal with it? I want to unpack this story verse by verse. We're going to work through, and I think at the end, we're going to get the answer to this question. At the beginning of our story, we see that what appears to be an official delegation of religious leaders has come from Jerusalem to investigate Jesus. They decide to question his disciples and specifically question their eating with unwashed hands. It was the practice of the Pharisees to go through a diligent hand-washing thing before they ate. They tried to enforce this on other Jews as well, and this wasn't a practice that was technically required in the Old Testament law. According to the Old Testament, only priests were required to wash before entering the tabernacle. Other than that, the only reason that you'd have to wash is if you touched a bodily discharge or a corpse or something like that. However, as the Jews were under foreign occupation and as they encountered more and more Gentiles or non-Jewish people, the question of being ritually clean took on new significance as they wanted to show their purity over and against the Gentiles. In an attempt to remain pure, the religious leaders had developed an oral law that Mark calls the tradition of the elders here. There were rules that were designed to ensure that you didn't accidentally break the law. Okay, so some refer to this as the fence around the Torah. Okay, so the Torah is the Old Testament law. It's the first five books of the Bible. It's this fence around it to kind of keep you from accidentally breaking the law. So the idea is that if you keep these extra rules, then you definitely won't break the actual rules. But by the time Jesus came on this scene, it was viewed as equally authoritative as Scripture. This happens sometimes. We come up with, or come up with traditions, and then they come up to the same authority as Scripture over time. These hand-washing rules are not from the actual law, again, but from the oral law. The Pharisees aren't accusing Jesus here of actually breaking the law, but of breaking this law. So to their accusations, their accusations, Jesus calls them hypocrites. In verse 6, he says this, Well, did... Hi- Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Okay, so this word for hypocrite, it carries out this idea of acting out a role without sincerity. It's like you're in theater or something. You're acting out this role, but you're not, you're not actually sincere. The Pharisees had pretended to be interested in obeying God, but they were more interested in obeying their man-made rules. It's easy to be judgmental of the Pharisees. It's easy to wonder, how did they get so far off? But the reality is they were onto something. They realized that something was wrong and that they weren't living into God's plans and purposes for their lives. They realized that they were impure and that and that they were separated from God. Their culture around them was decaying rapidly. They were supposed to be God's chosen people, but they were oppressed by a foreign pagan power. They also struggled to obey God and just be the holy people that God called them to be. They were spiritually sick, and they knew it. Something needed to change. In response to this, various sects popped up in Judaism who claimed to have the answer. These groups included the Pharisees, as we see here, but also the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. We talked about them before. They all had a different vision as to how to fix the world. Okay, so the Pharisees, they thought that the Jews needed to be more moral or follow more rules. The Sadducees tried to get political and cultural influence. The Essenes thought that they needed to be separate from the world, and the Zealots thought that they needed to start a military or a military revolution and take down Rome. Okay, so these groups, they tried to solve a spiritual problem with or with these worldly solutions. And we're not really that different from these groups. We think we are, but we're not. We often try to deal with our spiritual sickness through worldly solutions. Okay, so like the Pharisees, we often think that, or that religion's the answer. We think that we can just follow the rules a little better than God will love us, and the emptiness of our hearts will be dealt with. It will be filled, and we'll finally feel at peace. Or like the Sadducees and the Zealots, we think that political or cultural power could be the answer. We put our hope in politics and having worldly power. It becomes this weird religion to us. It ends up consuming us. We allow it to steal our joy when our people lose or give us too much joy when our people win. And for, and for still others of us, we realize that we're missing something and think that if we could just get more pleasure, more success, more fame, more achievement, more entertainment, then we'll be healed and whole. We think that if we can you know, be successful or get people to like us or achieve great things, then things will be okay in our hearts. These solutions are convenient for us because they are all out there somewhere. They're not in here, okay? So the problem isn't me and my heart. It's, it's following the right rituals or behaviors. It's, it's changing something in society at a big level, some societal structure or some political thing, or it's getting more of something that, or that we feel we lack. And the Jews, they thought that the answer was out there somewhere as well, that, and this is why they missed Jesus when he came onto the scene, because Jesus was saying that the answer is not out there, the answer is in here. And they missed him because they were looking for something out there not, or to solve the problem, not something in here. The Jews utterly missed the solution. And when this happens, there are grave consequences, specifically when it comes to our relationship with Scripture. Okay, so verses 8 through 13 says this. Let's, let's jump into this again. It says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother shall surely die. But you say, if a, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained for me is Corbin, that is 
given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down in many such things you do. Okay, so Jesus, his primary issue with the Pharisees here was that they set aside the word of God for their tradition. They had elevated the oral tradition above God's word. And Jesus, he drives this point home by referring to a practice called Corbin. So Corbin, what it means is dedicated. So Jews would take their property and dedicate it to God. Okay, so this meant that their property would go to the temple after they died. They got to continue to use it as their property, their property though, as long as they were alive. But then they could feel holy by giving it to the temple after they died. Convenient, right? But the problem with this is the property that was Corbin couldn't be used to care for their parents in their old age. It was already dedicated to God, therefore they couldn't use it or leverage it to help their parents out. So some Jews were getting out of this commandment to care for your parents or to honor your parents by saying that their property was Corbin. They essentially set aside one of the Ten Commandments for an extra biblical practice. They were usurping the word of God for their tradition. This is what often happens when we seek worldly solutions for spiritual problems. It causes us to devalue and neglect God's word. Okay, so here's the thing I want you to write down. When we use worldly solutions to deal with our spiritual sickness, we can easily neglect God's word. Okay, so let me explain this. In the Pharisees' case here, their solution of religion and behavior modification caused them to elevate their traditions above the actual word of God. And for us, when we emphasize outward behaviors or religious practices, we can often elevate these extra biblical traditions or practices over God's word. We can elevate the religion of our parents or tradition over the actual word of God. The Pharisees, they also did this with their political agenda. Their purity laws were not just religious. They were also political. They were a way to stir up animosity against Rome and encourage uh, a more vivid uh, separation from the Gentiles. So this agenda, it caused them to miss Jesus as he was healing lepers. He was hanging out with tax collectors. He was having parties with sinners. He was touching a woman with a discharge of blood. He had touched a dead body and raised that dead body. They couldn't see Jesus and his word because they overvalued their politics. And we can do this too. We often elevate our ideologies over scripture. Instead of Jesus informing our politics, our politics inform our view of Jesus. Here's the thing, and I know this ain't popular. When you, meet, or when you meet Jesus, you must bring your political views, your ideologies, anything you think about the world, you must bring it under his authority and let him reshape it. He is now your king, so he should reshape your view of the world. That'll preach. I could keep going, but I'm going to leave that there, okay? But the Pharisees, they also elevated the worldly pursuits over God's word. Okay, the purity laws were a way that they pursued power and dominance over other people. It gave them a feeling of significance. Okay, so when Jesus challenged these laws, they weren't willing to let them go, partially because they found significance in these laws. Okay, so for us, our pursuits of success or fame or pleasure, they cause us to devalue God's word. We'll pursue success even when it means devaluing our family. We'll pursue fame even when it means becoming narcissistic. Have you looked at Instagram lately? Okay, just, again, we'll leave that there. I could just go off on some tangents here. You don't think narcissism might have something to do with some of that? Okay, anyways. Okay, we'll pursue forms of pleasure that dishonor God. 
will say, hey, I really want this, so I'm going to do this even though it dishonors God. Okay, whenever we seek worldly solutions for our spiritual sickness, God's word suffers. And we are particularly guilty of this for those of us who are Christians in America. Okay, so we allow so many ideologies, traditions, agendas, and worldly pursuits to cause us to minimize the word of God. It's pretty clear from Jesus' standoff with the Pharisees that external or worldly solutions are not the answer to an inward spiritual problem. We desperately need something more. Okay, so let's look at it. Verse 14, he says, Hear me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that, that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? And thus he declared all foods clean. Okay, so Jesus, he makes the point that these external solutions missed the point. They didn't need an outward ritualistic purity. They needed an inward purity. It's not about the food you eat. It's not about the rituals you perform or your formalities. In verse 19, Mark makes a, a side comment that Jesus was declaring all foods clean. This is a big deal. This is a huge deal. In the Old Testament, there are so many ritualistic and dietary laws. Is Jesus saying that these don't matter anymore? Is he just doing away with them? Like, oh, forget about that. Well, not exactly. He's not saying that they don't matter, and he's definitely not just throwing them out like garbage. He's saying that they are being fulfilled in his ministry. It's beautiful what's happening. He's saying they are being fulfilled. In Matthew 5, it says this. It says, do not think, this is Jesus, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, it's going to pass from the law until all is accomplished. Okay, so Jesus, he obviously wasn't throwing these laws away. They were important for their specific purpose. They were a signpost pointing towards a deeper purity that they needed, a purity of the heart. These laws were meant to serve as a reminder of their inward impurity before God and a reminder that they needed a Savior. But in Jesus, he fills that need. He makes us pure on the inside. The reminder is not needed anymore. We don't need to do the ritualistic, the dietary things. When the Pharisees focused on these outward matters of purity, they were utterly missing the point. Okay, so does that mean that our external behaviors don't matter at all, like just do whatever you want, have fun? Well, not exactly either. Okay, so let's look in verse 20. It says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts and sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things, they come from within, and they defile a person. Okay, so Jesus, he's certainly not saying that external behaviors don't matter. He's saying that external behaviors that have nothing to do with your heart don't matter. Okay, the food you eat, the rituals you practice, they are not the point. But behaviors that flow from your heart, they deeply matter. The moral laws of the Old Testament are still guidelines for God's people as they reflect what's in our hearts. God is certainly after purity. I believe he's after a pure generation. I believe that's something he wants to do in this next generation is raise up a people of purity. He's after a pure heart. He's after an undefiled heart that doesn't get defiled by all the things of the world. But what Jesus is saying is that if you want to truly be pure, if you truly want to be beautiful on the outside, you got to be beautiful on the inside. Pure behavior flows from a pure heart. Can I get an amen, somebody? Come on. That'll preach. Okay, so if we want to be pure, we must experience a revolution of the heart. If you want to be pure, if you want to live a holy lifestyle, if you want to be the person that God called you to be, you need a heart revolution. That's what Jesus is saying. 
Okay, so these laws were meant to point to our need. They were meant to point to that. They were meant to put desperation in the hearts of the Jewish people, a desperation for inward purity, for truly pure lifestyles. But these laws could not make them pure. They could not make them holy. Okay, so if we want to live truly holy lives that just love God and love others, then we must have a pure heart. That should be our primary concern. Proverbs 4 says to guard your heart because everything else flows from it. We need to guard our hearts. If our hearts are pure, then we can think holy thoughts. We, or thoughts. we can walk in sexual purity. We can treat other people well. We can walk humbly and so forth. But if our hearts are wicked, then sin is going to flow from us. The answer to our spiritual sickness is not out there somewhere. It's right in here. It's in the heart. This is what Jesus' kingdom is all about. It's a revolution of the heart. But the question remains, how do we see our hearts change? Well, the answer to this, actually, we're going to have to go back to Mark 1, when Jesus first started his ministry. And and in verse 15, he started his ministry by saying this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, so notice he did not say that the time is fulfilled, here's a new government reform or political leader. He didn't say the time is fulfilled, here's a new behavior to follow or a new religious custom to practice. He didn't say time is fulfilled, here's a new dream to pursue, a new pleasure to experience. He didn't say those things. He said the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of Yahweh, the kingdom of God, it's at hand. A whole new way of living is here. The kingdom where God is king is finally here. The kingdom of God is anywhere that God rules. Okay, so if we want to see our hearts change, if we want to see our spiritual sickness cured, then we got to let God be king in our hearts. If we want to see our world change, then Jesus just has to become king in more places. Okay, so if we want a revolution of heart, Jesus must become king. He must become king, not just friend, okay, not just like buddy, and not even just a savior. He has to become king of our hearts. It's not about religion. It's not about worldly agendas. It's not about pursuing our dreams. It's about Jesus becoming king in our lives and in our world. And when this happens, beauty and restoration begins to flow. And those other things that we've talked about, those things begin to take care of themselves. As God becomes king in our hearts and in the world, evil is rolled back. If we let him deal with the inside, the outside stuff will just flow out. As followers of Jesus, this certainly does not mean that that we don't care about our behavior or politics or having influence in the world. We should care about those things. But we realize that that stuff has to flow out of a changed heart, not the other way around. Those things aren't going to fix the heart. The heart has to fix those things. Good biblical political agendas can flow from changed hearts. Good behaviors can flow from changed heart. Good pursuits can flow from changed hearts. I'm all for seeing these outward things change. That's why, that's why we planted this church was to change the world, right? I'm all for it. But it has to happen in the right way. It has to flow from changed hearts. Again, it's not out there. It's in here, and I know that stinks to hear sometimes. It's right in here. If we each do the work in our hearts, that's where restoration is going to flow. But it starts with us. It starts with us. As God's people, our priority has to be seeing God become king in our hearts first, and then in the hearts of our friends. Okay, but just one more question I want to answer. How does Jesus become king? Okay, how does that happen, though? Okay, so changed heart comes from Jesus becoming king, but how does Jesus become king? Well, let's look at verse 15 of chapter 1 again. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Do what? Repent. Ooh. He doesn't say take up arms. He doesn't say change the government. He doesn't say those things. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Come on. 
That's what he says. He says, turn the other way. He says, believe that someone else out there is coming to save you. I'm coming to save you, but I'm not going to do it through the way you think. He says, repent and believe in the good news that Jesus Christ has come to die for your sins and deal with your heart. And he's come to rise from the grave and deal with death. That's how Jesus becomes king. We have to repent. We have to believe. He, he becomes king when we resign as kings and queens of our lives. He becomes king when we turn the other way. He becomes king when we turn from our sins. But we don't just repent. We believe in the gospel. Okay, we believe in the gospel. And another way to say this is we put our trust in what Jesus has done on the cross and in the resurrection. We turn from trusting ourselves to trusting Jesus. We turn from having our heart's allegiance be to the kingdom of me to the kingdom of God. We have to turn. We have to trust. If we want Jesus to become king, we must repent and trust. When we first come to faith in Christ, this happens for the first time when we hear of what Jesus has done for us and, and we surrender to him. That's when it happens the first time. But our journey with repentance does not stop at salvation. We have to continue living a lifestyle of repentance as Jesus reveals, his sin, reveals our sin to us, and trust me, he will. He'll continue to reveal it. And when that happens, we need to repent. We need to turn. We have to live this lifestyle. And if we can do that, Jesus will become king and our hearts will change. Okay, so let me give some examples from my life. Okay, you may feel like I'm coming at you this morning. Let's talk about my life, okay? Let's put me on, on the stage here, talk, or put me on the operating board. Take a look, okay? So here's the thing. All throughout my teenage years, I really struggled with purity, okay, just, and I'm talking about sexual purity, okay? I struggled with it a lot, and I think a lot of teenage boys do, okay, but I really struggled with it, and I felt guilty about it at first, but eventually, I just kind of accepted it as part of my life. It's like, well, I can't get over this. I'm just going to accept it, so I didn't live in repentance. I just accepted it, and, and during my freshman year of college, I was at a powerful worship service. It was on a Thursday night, and the preacher, he, he talked about his pursuit of purity and talked about his relationship with his wife, and his wife was there with him. And as he was preaching, I, I can't explain it, but the conviction of the Holy Spirit just came over me, like heaviness. Jesus came to me. He, he met me in that space. I was sitting on the drums on the worship team, and I was living an impure life. He's preaching. I'm like, oh my goodness, I need to change. I wanted that kind of marriage. I wanted that kind of purity, but I knew something needed to change. I needed to change directions, because that's what repentance is. It's changing directions. I had a girlfriend at the time, wasn't official, but a girlfriend, that I was hanging out with, and right after service, I went to her dorm, and I broke up with her so that I could walk in purity. I did that right after service, but even though it was hard, but I had to do it because I had to change directions. That's what God was telling me to do. God came to me, and I responded by repenting, and little did I know that that was only the beginning of the journey that was going to happen that weekend. The next night was fall retreat. It was Friday night. The preacher spoke again, the same guy. I felt extremely convicted, this time not about my relationships, but my personal struggles with purity, specifically with pornography. Okay, so I went to the altar, I repented to my friends, and I wept before God. I, I felt so much grief. Not like, God's going to punish me, so I'm sorry, I don't want you to punish me, but like, God, I've hurt your heart. I've, I've hurt your heart. You died for me, and yet I've hurt you this deeply by continuing to go back to the sin over and over again. I need to be saved. I need to be restored. I need to be saved. And I need to be delivered. Something needs to happen. God, please do something in me. And my friends prayed for me. In that space of deep repentance, my heart just melted in God's presence. Jesus became king in that area. There was like a regime, or a regime change. He became king, and I was genuinely changed. Over that weekend, the chains of sexual impurity broke off my life, and that was over 10 years ago. But since then, it's not like that, that fixed everything, okay? So for some of you people that 
that maybe struggle with that kind of sin, something that's like an addiction that, that's really holding you back. Sometimes that's all you're focused on, but there's a lot more that God wants to do than just deal with those big outward sins. It's not just about helping you get free from alcoholism or free from drugs or free from sexual impurity. He wants to deal with your heart in other ways as well. So, you know, just a couple weeks ago, I was on a prayer walk. I try to prayer walk every morning. I was on a prayer walk. And I just, the same thing, same thing that I experienced my freshman year, just like the Holy Spirit coming to me, just so convicted because I had I'd said a harsh word to Emily a couple weeks before that, and I'd kind of forgotten about it. It came back to me. I felt the deep conviction of the Holy Spirit. I was like, oh my goodness, I'm not being the husband that I'm called to be. It just felt like deep, godly grief. Not like, hey, God's going to punish me or God's mad at me. Just like, wow, I've hurt your heart, God. I've hurt Emily. I'm not being the husband and the dad that you called me to be. And I told Emily when I got back, I, I repented. You know, just last night, Jane whacked Abram with the plastic golf club. Okay, I don't know how, but uh, I was sitting typing this sermon, and she just, I hear clunk, and Abram just starts bawling. I turn around, I'm like, did you do it on purpose? She's like, yes, I did. I'm like, I'm like, how dare you? And she actually didn't know what she's talking about, honestly. She didn't do it on purpose. I found out later, but I got really mad at her because I thought she did it on purpose. She told me she did. So I yelled at her a little bit. I went back to my sermon to preach, a, to write a sermon about the heart. I'm like, God, oh man, I feel so convicted right now. And again, I'm not afraid that God's going to punish me. He's already punished Jesus on my behalf. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about grieving someone who, who loves me so much and has given so much to me. How could I treat my daughter that way? How could I respond in anger when something like that happens? I'm supposed to be like Jesus, who's, who's gentle and lowly in heart. How can I treat my wife like that? How could I go back to impurity when God has made me white as snow. How can I go back to those things? And if I do slip into those things, I better repent. I better turn from it, not just accept it as part of my life. This kind of deep, godly grief at our sin and genuine desire to change is what leads to Jesus becoming king in these areas. And I'm not saying I got it figured out. I promise you there'll be something next year that God reveals to me that I've been doing. Like, oh, I missed it there. Okay, Jesus, let's change that. You know, it took me a long time to have that really deep repentance about a harsh word, like just deep. It was deeper than usual. So I'm not saying I've got it figured out, but, but this is the kind of godly grief and desire to change that's going to actually lead to Jesus becoming king. As we have that grief and as we respond by surrendering, he's going to take up residence in that area. So in these different areas, the way I treat my daughter, the way I treat my wife, Jesus is king, right? Because I'm saying, I resign, I stink at this, can you be king? And that's what we need to do when we come, or come face-to-face with him, where we say, hey, I'm not going to try to figure this out. Or figure this out on my own. I'm going to repent and say, you are king. Please help me with this. Please, Jesus, change my heart. Help me. And as Jesus becomes the master, purity and holiness will begin to flow from our hearts. And it won't all be perfect overnight. It's a lifelong journey, but this is the process. Okay, so Jesus, this is the main idea. He came to bring a revolution of the heart. He came to bring a revolution of the heart. That's why he came. Okay, so with all this in mind, if you came in here this morning and you're a believer, but you're struggling with sin... I believe that God wants to meet with you. We're about to have church. I just believe that. I believe that God wants to meet with you. Maybe you look at this, at this list in Mark 7 about the sins that flow from the heart. Let's just look at it. Just read it to us again. He says, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, which Jesus said if you're angry, that's murder. Okay, so if you're angry. Adultery, which Jesus said if you even look at a woman with lustful intent, then you've committed adultery in your heart coveting, so wanting what someone else has. You look at Instagram, you want what other people have. Wickedness or deceit, you don't tell the whole truth. You kind of just give a little bit of the truth. You kind of make it sound better. You're deceitful or sensuality or envy. So again, back to social media, you're envious of other people's things. Slander, you talk bad about people behind their backs. 
even say things that aren't true. Pride, you think you're way better than you are. You don't have an accurate view of yourself. Or maybe you think you're way worse than you are. That can be pride as well. You're overly focusing on yourself. You know, C.S. Lewis, he said that, that humility is just thinking of yourself less. Okay, so you think of yourself too much. You're always just thinking about yourself. That's pride or foolishness. Okay, so in Proverbs, uh, Solomon tells us that, that foolishness is when someone comes to you and tries to correct you and you respond by just saying, no, go away. I don't want to listen to you. That's foolishness. You don't listen to people. You just kind of try to do your own thing. These are all things that can defile you, is what Jesus says. These are the kind of things that flow out when your heart is defiled. And if you come in this morning and you're a follower of Jesus and, and you've been, been living in those sins and just accepting them as part, or as part of your life, you need to repent this morning. I'm not going to miss my words on this. You need to repent. You need to turn from that. We have allowed sin into the camp for far too long. Over the last few decades, we've been all about grace, and I'm all about grace, right? That, that song, Whole Heart, when we're singing that song about God's grace, I'm all about it. But we've been all about grace so much so that it becomes this cheap kind of grace where it's like, hey, you don't have to change at all. You can just keep living the way you are. Just keep doing what you're doing. Jesus just wants to get you into heaven. That's what it's all about. No, Jesus came to get heaven into you. But for that to happen, you have to repent and let him be the king of your heart. So this morning, if you've allowed those things to take up residence, it is time to put those things before Jesus. Stop holding on to them. And when you do, you're going to find so much joy and peace in God's presence. Those times when I wept at the altar, those times on prayer walks when God convicts me, there's always joy that comes after the morning as I put those things before Jesus and he heals my heart. So this morning, you come into church this morning and you might need to repent. There might be something where you need to just put it before Jesus and say, I'm walking away from that. I am changing directions. I'm not allowing that to take up residence in my life anymore. But if you're here this morning and and you've never asked Jesus to be king, you never became a Christian before, you never have walked in relationship with him, I believe he wants to meet with you as well. I bet if you're very honest with yourself, you would realize that you've been seeking worldly solutions for a spiritual problem. There's sickness in your heart, and you've tried to medicate it with entertainment, with substance abuse, with success in your career, with politics, with religion, with your family even. You could fill in the blank. You've tried to medicate it with these different worldly things. The only way you can be changed, the only way you can be healed is if you place your life in Jesus' hands. If you let him be king. It's not about something you do. It's not about measuring up. It's about saying, Jesus, I'm done. I surrender. You can be king of my life. The beautiful thing is even though you are sinful and you are impure before God, Jesus came to earth to take on that penalty for your sin. He came to take on your impurity so you wouldn't have to. He died a gruesome death on the cross so you could have your sins paid for. It says this in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him to be no, or to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The one who knew no sin, the one who never messed up once, the one who's been with God the Father and God the Spirit for all of eternity, he took on our sins so that we could become righteous the pure one took on our impurity. This is scandalous. The pure one, the purest one that, there, that there's ever been, he, he came and took on our impurity so, or so we could be pure. He took on, or took on our impurity so, or so when we stand before God, he doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see all that junk that we just talked about, but he sees Christ. He sees the blood of Jesus covering us. The king of the universe did this for you and I. So if you're here this morning and you have yet to accept that sacrifice, I believe today is your day. And we're going to give you an opportunity to accept that in just a few moments. But before we do that, I just want to sum all this up this morning. Okay, so this world, it gives us, it gives us so many opportunities to pursue the wrong solutions to our spiritual problem. 
And today, Jesus is asking us to come to him and let him deal with it. He wants to let him be the answer. Or he wants us to let him be the answer. He wants us to each have a lifestyle of repentance and trust so he can change our hearts. And if we let him change our hearts, we'll begin to live pure lives and we'll have an impact in the world. We'll see the world become more like God's kingdom as Jesus becomes king of more hearts. But we have to get the order correct. Heart change first, outward stuff second. If you're here this morning and you realize that you've gotten your focus wrong and want to refocus on letting God move in your heart through repentance and trust, I want to give you a chance to do that. So let's stand to our feet all across this room. We're going to respond to God. Bring the lights down. We're going to have a moment with Jesus. I believe that Jesus wants to meet with us this morning. Don't leave church without meeting with him today. Okay, so I'm going to give you two ways to respond. The first way is going to be what I just said. If you're here, you're a Christian, and you've been focusing on the outward stuff but not on the heart, and you want to repent of something or turn the other way or trust Jesus in a greater way, I'm going to count to three. When I do, I just want you to slip up your hand saying, hey, that's me. So if you could bow your heads, close your eyes. It's just between you and the Lord. If there's something you need to repent of or a new way that that you need to trust Jesus, can you slip up your hand all across this room? I see tons of hands going up already. You're slipping up right now just telling Jesus, hey, I repent. I'm changing directions. I'm going the other way. I trust you to be my Savior. I'm not the Savior. You're the Savior, Jesus. I'm trusting you. Change my heart. Okay, so let's pray that. Jesus, right now we come to you, and for those who want to turn, for those who want to change, God, I pray that you would meet them in this space. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do your convicting work all across this room. Like, not just like, I'm sorry, I don't want to go to hell, but a a genuine grief at our sin. God, I pray for a genuine grief at our sin, but I pray that as you draw us into that grief, that there would be joy that comes after it as we bring that to you and as we set that down at your feet. So God, we thank you for that. I pray for repentance, a spirit of repentance all across this room. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, one more way to respond this morning. We keep our heads bowed, our eyes closed. And this is for those who are not followers of Jesus yet. And you come in this morning and you want to put your faith or your trust in Jesus and let him be king. There's no magic formula to pray. There's no special thing you have to do. It's just simply a prayer of surrender saying, Jesus, I'm going to let you be my savior. I'm going to let you be my king. So the way we're going to do that, I'm going to count to three. And when I do, just slip up your hand so I know who I'm praying for. Okay, so if you want to come into relationship with Jesus or recommit your life to him. I'm going to count to three. When I do, slip up your hand. One, two, three. I'll cross this room. Let's see. I see that hand. Is there anyone else in this room? It's a little dark, so I can't really see that well, but there's hands going up. So go ahead and put your hands down. I'll pray for you, and just pray in your heart. All right, so Jesus, right now, for those who come in and want to come into relationship with you, Lord, I pray that you would do an inward work, that there would be a supernatural change that happens in the heart. I think about 2 Corinthians 5, 17, where it says that if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. God, I pray that that would happen. Like new creatures would burst up all across this room, burst out. God, I pray for that. We thank you, Lord, for that. Lord, we repent of our sins. We turn from doing our own thing, and we ask you to be king of our lives. We love you, Jesus. In your name, amen.